It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. That's a famous passage from 1 Corinthians that many scholars believe made its way into the Bible sometime after the death of the Apostle Paul. And few Christian churches today abide strictly by that admonition. A new book from the Church Historians Press highlights women speaking in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from its founding in 1830 to the present day. The book is called At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. In this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast, we'll talk about the book with its editors, Jennifer Reeder and Kate Holbrook, who join us from the Church History Department of the LDS Church in Salt Lake City. Questions about this and other episodes can be sent to mipodcast at byu.edu. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. I'm in Salt Lake City today at the Church History Library with Jennifer Reeder and Kate Holbrook. And together they've edited a new, a new book called At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. Thank you both for taking the time to meet with me today and for inviting me to the Church History Library. Thanks for, for joining us, Blair. Yes, thank you. We're really excited about this project. It's a great project. Um, I was able to look through the manuscript, and I, I wanted to talk about how this came about. What was the genesis of this collection? So I was having a conversation with Jill Mulvader not long after I started working here myself at the Church History Department, and we were thinking how much we need a women's journal of discourses. And we liked the idea in the conversation, and we let it simmer. And then when we had space to bring on another full-time person to study women's history, which is the job that Jenny received, when we were interviewing with Jenny, we said, is this something you'd be interested in working on? And she said yes. So we didn't do any other planning aside from coming up with that initial idea until Jenny was fully on board. So she was here from the beginning as far as thinking through the structure of the book, what we wanted to accomplish with the book, and how we would go about doing that. So you mentioned Journal of Discourses, and that is a collection of discourses that were given, I think, mostly in the 19th century, where LDS church leaders would speak at general conference meetings and things like this, and those sermons were transcribed and compiled and put into these volumes. And so I think there's 27 or 28 volumes of the Journal of Discourses. I don't remember exactly how many there are. But yeah, I think I don't think there's any women in the Journal of Discourses that's printed, is there? No, no women. We've, we've gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they mentioned some women. I don't know. <laughs> but not good enough. Yeah, so we have that whole collection of, of sermons, and the voice of women is just completely absent there. So I think this, this was a really good idea. How long ago was that, Jenny, when you uh, came to the Church History Library? I started in June of 2013, but I remember speaking with Matt Groh before um, in December of 2012, and him telling me a little bit about this project and being so excited. And so it kind of sat on my back burner for six months until I started. And then we were able to jump right in. We had to establish what we wanted to have happen and how many talks we wanted to have and how we wanted it to represent the history of the church. Now, I haven't seen the actual printed book yet, but it looks like it'll be a fairly, a fairly thick book. Compared to the Book of Relief Society minutes, how, how large do you think it'll be, Kate? It's not as large as the first 50 years of Relief Society, so you won't get quite as good exercise reading it yeah. <laughs> as you do the other book, but it is a substantial book. So let's talk about women speaking 
publicly, and let's put it in an American context. This is how you uh, introduce the book in the introduction. You talk about how the Relief Society was founded in an era when women's speaking and preaching in churches uh, was a contentious issue. So let's unpack that a little bit more. Jenny, why don't you uh, give us a taste of the context here? Sure, absolutely. So it's interesting that although women made up a great majority of the congregations, they didn't speak much in churches. Um, The earliest account that we found in America is in the 1630s in Boston, when Anne Hutchinson starts teaching select groups of women. And that just happens as she meets with them in their homes and around childbirth, labor beds, and then she starts holding larger meetings. Um, But she really, she takes the scriptures the same way that the men would take the scriptures. She, she reads Titus, that the, the elder women should instruct the young, whereas Paul's saying that women should remain silent. She encourages women to talk about scripture and to grapple with the, the difficult religious questions that were permeating Boston at the time. As a result, she was banished from Massachusetts. And that was just for teaching women. Like she wasn't I think even... it was for teaching, just speaking aloud, speaking and not stopping when she was asked to oh. speak. You said, stop. She, you said she would like primarily speak to in that's how she started too. okay and I so think then she would speak a little bit right. more and, and then, then it was like ooh. yeah okay. i think her circles expanded and okay. people started listening and wanting to speak too and that worried hmm. some of the clergy and then they asked her to stop then she didn't and then she and left she, went she, to rhode yeah. island and yes. was killed by indians yeah, that's, yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a tragic way to open the book, I think. Like, <laughs> but uh, representative of some of the obstacles that women faced at the time, because the book is going to start around the time that the LDS Church was established. So we're talking about the 1830s, and and this is sort of the prehistory of that setting right. up the context. So after Hutchinson, what do we see sort of leading up to the LDS era? So I believe the Great Awakening really sparks this idea of religious evangelicalism, of sharing personal religious conviction. And that sort of leads into many different women speaking in their congregations and feeling the need to share their conversion experiences. We have the American Revolution, which not religiously but politically charges people and the common person to stand up and to speak up. And then we start having people, we start having women in particular speaking at tea parties and at salons and in different venues as they discuss revolutionary strategies and techniques and democracy. And then that kind of bleeds over into the Second Great Awakening when you have this shift of leadership and the the idea of democracy permeates America, where the common person has a voice and has something to say. The Second Great Awakening, I think, really sparked individual experience and individual expression as well. And you have different congregations favoring different types of women speaking. Um, evangelical women in particular, I found a lot of tracks and uh, reminiscences of women as early as the 1820s and 30s who would speak and travel and speak. And a lot of times they were censored, but there were women. It's, it just seems like we don't know about those women. There's a lot of Quaker women, a lot of uh, Methodist women. And then I think they kind of go through this period where once they've sort of established this progressive new view of religion, that they kind of pull back and retrench and try to refine, if you will, their church and make it into a more respectable organization, which uh, at that time would prohibit women from speaking. So you kind of get this ebb and flow of women participating and then being pulled back. 
So one of the things that I saw also in the introduction was it also emphasized that ebb and flow, but it also talked about um, speaking in mixed gender audiences, and that was still this issue where even when when women began to speak more and more, there, there still was this, it was sort of unsightly or unseemly or undignified or something. What was the concern about women speaking at that time into a mixed gender audience? I think that really stems from the constrictions placed on gender in general about how there was a certain sphere for women and a different sphere for men. And when those two spheres were combined, men should take the role or take the lead. This kind of goes up even into the early 20th century, this idea, I'm thinking, for example, B.H. Roberts wasn't incredibly keen on women speaking in uh, in a political context. And the idea was that, you know, this is sort of a rough and tumble manly uh, uh, place and women, we don't want your shoes to get dirty, so to speak, kind of a thing. Was that uh, part of it early on as well? You know, I think it was. And I think there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it. If you look at it from the terms of the market revolution and the sh- transition from home economy to a market economy, um, and you see this transition of gender as well, where women remain at home and men are in the marketplace. But then we also see this um, rise of the benevolent empire, where there's the growth of urban centers and urban population, and there's a lot of social concerns. And it seems natural for women to be involved in those kinds of issues. So women are gathering and speaking and moving forward in benevolent work and in missionary work, even supporting foreign missions in moral reform. Um, We see women starting to get involved in social causes as abolition. And these are all different ways that women did speak publicly. Like later on prohibition. Right. Mm -hmm. And women's suffrage, obviously. So you, through through the course of the 19th century, it's not necessarily this this straight to trajectory of equalization and women getting better access. There seems to be cycles, ebbs and flows when it becomes more or less acceptable for women to speak. And this is the context in which Latter-day Saint women were coming to understand their place and how they fit into the LDS church and when they could speak and where they could speak and all of that stuff. Absolutely. In fact, I think it's kind of interesting that it was in 1830 that Joseph Smith received a revelation for Emma Smith and gave her the charge to expound scripture and exhort the church. But it wasn't until 12 years later when the Relief Society was actually formed when there was some sort of medium or association by which she could expound and exhort that that really takes off for Emma. Yeah, and, and I think pe- people tend to forget, too, that the church's structure was different back then, and it's, it's meeting schedule. You know, they didn't have a three-hour block where you had two sacrament <laughs> meeting talks and, you know, youth speaker and, you know, so on and so forth, or, you know. So the opportunities for, for Emma to speak, um, the, there wasn't anything carved out, uh, especially in those first 10 years right. or until the Relief Society was established. Um, but you did, as, as we'll talk about, include some sources from before that time. Uh, and part of the interview, we'll, we'll actually talk about several of these pieces that you've included. But let's talk about what this book is like uh, as a book. So, Kate, why don't you describe the book itself and how it's put together? Well, we think of the book as a greatest hits of Mormon women's talks. And there are 54 talks included in the volume. We tried to choose a few from each decade. In some of the earlier decades, there are more than two or three because the speeches were quite short. And then one of our favorite parts in participating in the writing of the book was to write historical introductions for each of these talks. So we give some background for the speaker, 
if there is a life experience that she's had that might inform what she's saying and why she's saying it the way she's saying it, uh, we give that. And if there's a particular historical content that seems germane, then we also um, we talk about that. For example, one woman speaks about going and visiting, teaching the woman whose son has just been called to war. Well, she says that during the early years of the Korean War. So we want to make sure people have that context. So that's kind of how the book is put together. Um, Let's talk about selection a little bit. There are different types of sources, largely dependent on the era in which they occurred. So what kind of sources did you turn to uh, earlier on to later on? Blair, we looked everywhere we could find a talk by a woman. Everywhere. So we combed through old Relief Society books. We looked through magazines. uh, The Relief Society magazine, we looked through the Young Women's Journal and the Women's Exponent. We looked through uh, more recent, maybe a book in which, that hadn't had wide circulation, but in which speeches were printed. And then for more recent years, we looked at devotionals and other talks that were recorded online. So yeah, it's interesting. Some of the earlier on sources are very short. There's even some really short ones in there that are sort of even like a paragraph or two long, which, which was interesting. Or there's some from, I think from the Relief Society Minutes book where of Emma Smith's someone sort of reporting on what she talked about. That, I think, is some of the both challenges and excitement about working with early records. With these minute books, it it all depended on who the secretary was and how well the secretary took minutes, and we always have to recognize that there's a certain slant or subjectivity that comes through the, a secretary's recording of Anyone minutes. who's live-tweeted something can know, like, yeah, you're, <laughs> yes, you're definitely being selective in like, what you do. Right. Well, and I think that's also where we see this change over time and the change of technology, the way that things were recorded, but also in the way that, that women spoke. We really had to take the word discourse and define it broadly in order to fit and and recognize the way that women spoke in the early part of the of the history of the church in the early parts of this book. For example, our second talk is by Elizabeth Ann Whitney in 1835. She's speaking in the nearly completed Kirtland Temple at a patriarchal blessing meeting where she has just been given the the gift of tongues in her patriarchal blessing. She immediately stands up and sings a song in tongues that is translated by Parley P. Pratt. So this isn't necessarily a talk like we would consider a discourse or a speech today, but it was a way where she was able to stand up and where everybody listened to her, and she was speaking to a mixed audience, and she was sharing thoughts and ideas and gospel principles that were recorded later. Actually, they were recorded at the moment, and then she kept them, and we the source that we use for this is the women's exponent, which she then copies them into in 1872. Do we know if she did any editing of that herself? Because this was a really this was to me the most unique source in the book, precisely because it was something that was spoken in tongue, so an unknown language, and then translated by a man. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a like mm-hmm. at the pulpit discourses by Latter Day Saint women. We don't have that because it was apparently in some unknown tongue, but we do have a translation that was given by a man. So it's kind of, I mean, how about that as a source? I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall and seen that happen because I just, it's just something we don't do today, but it's something that was a common practice at the time. Using charismatic gifts or gifts of the spirit was something that these women felt comfortable with. And Elizabeth Ann Whitney at that time in the 1830s felt much more comfortable 
using her musical talents. Later, years later in Utah, she spoke quite a bit. Um, but also we see how she uses this gift and how other women use this gift through time and how it becomes a part of their, in particular, their distinct Mormon women discourse. And women would interpret for women sometimes as well, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, like, yes. And Parley P. Pratt happened to be the one who gave the interpretation yes. of this one. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah. And and if we had cut this out because Parley P. Pratt, it, it's unusual because we did have both the, we did have the, interpretation written out and if we had cut it because that interpretation was by a man then we would have cut out a, a really significant way in which women were participating in public discourse yeah and so. she she owned it as well like she she viewed it as revelation from her it, it it's funny because i mean it's the the rhyming of it sounds very prattian i get to use it does for, yeah it's like in ancient days there lived a man amidst a pleasant garden where lovely flowers immortal bloomed and shed around a rich perfume behold his name was adam uh, well, and it sounds very much like the, is it the W.W. Phelps hymn, Adam on Diamond, right. the same cadence. Yeah, yeah, it does. And and you, you note that in the, in the introduction stuff, too. Right, and it's interesting because as, as closely as we could examine the, the historical record, um, it was that same day that they were having a, a meeting in Kirtland in the temple to discuss the creation of the hymn book that mm. Emma had been charged to do, and just the timing of all of it is so interesting. It has to be connected in some way. Yeah, and, and the other thing it's connected to that you mentioned in the introduction is that in, in a blessing given to Elizabeth Ann Whitney, Joseph Smith Sr. promised her the gift of singing inspirationally. Yes. She was known for her musical talents, for singing and for playing the piano and for dancing. And I think, again, I think this was a natural way in which she could discourse. Yeah, I, It'd be really neat to see, uh, to hear it, uh, because I know. apparently it was in song, and so, yeah. And that's just one of the many sources in the book. And one of the things in the introduction that you point out as well I wanted to, to mention here is a quote. You say, notwithstanding the tradition of Mormon women's discourses, so there was this tradition of Mormon women's discourses that's represented in the book, notwithstanding that tradition, many Latter-day Saint women have been reluctant to speak or preach publicly for a variety of reasons, both cultural and personal. So I wanted to spend a little time on what some of those reasons might be that would make Latter-day Saint women reluctant to speak or preach publicly, perhaps even up to the present. Franklin D. Richards gives a speech that we have in the first 50 years of Relief Society, the volume from Church Historians Press that came last year, in which he, he chastises the men in the audience and he encourages women to speak. And he says, I know that some of you women aren't speaking because when you put yourselves in public, men will make fun of you and they will belittle you. And so he criticizes the men for doing that. And then he tries to encourage the women to speak even though they risk being belittled by men because it was so seen as being something that they did out of their place. What would they say? Would they say, like, you're acting like a man and that's not manly? Like, what was the actual ridicule, do you know? All we know is that they did it. We can know, imagine. Like, like, I'm trying to think, like, because today we hear women speak, we just hear women speak. and It's so hard to, to not cast our own presentism views on how difficult it was for a lot of these women. Some of my favorite stories are Zina Young in 1869 in Lehigh expressed concern She as she got up to speak to the Lehigh Relief Society. She said, I am not accustomed to public speaking, but I'm pleased to look upon the faces of the sisters. 
And even Eliza R. Snow, when Brigham Young invited her in 1867-68 to go among the bishops of the different wards and the different settlements and organize relief societies, the thought of public speaking to Eliza R. Snow, who we all now revere as this great Mormon mother, she said, the thought of that made my heart go pit a pat. It scared her to death. I think it's interesting, though, because as they, as they spoke more, as they traveled, and as they gained experience, they gained confidence. And later, um, Eliza R. Snow invited Emily S. Richards to, give, uh, to stand up and speak, and Emily had nothing to say. She was a teenager, and she had nothing to say. And Eliza said, well, that's fine, never mind, but just next time have something to say. And years later, Emily S. Richards was speaking before the the National Women's Suffrage Association in Washington, D.C., and she had gained that experience and felt very confident, and her efforts were praised. You, You really see throughout the book the ways the Relief Society and young women organizations in particular provide a space in which women can find their voice, exercise their voice, and gain gain confidence working in the public sphere. And I wonder how much of that, too, some of the caveats that women give in the beginning of their uh, their mm-hmm. discourses about, you know, my heart went pit-a-pat and these type of things, I wonder how much of that was carried on through, I'm thinking of folklore studies that talk about narrative contexts where um, when you go to a fast and testimony meeting today, there's a certain formula mm-hmm. that is pretty established that people follow almost without thinking about it. I wonder if that, if those sort of caveats became a part of women's discourses and sort of perpetuated the idea that you should maybe feel sort of uh, reluctant to speak or to, uh, you know, that your heart should go pit-a-pat. And if it doesn't, then maybe there's something wrong with you or something. I think that's true. I think it's a cultural thing. And yet I think there are also other women who who don't stand for any of that. Sarah Kimball gets up and she never <laughs> seems like she's afraid to speak at all. I'm um, same with Elvira Barney. So I think it I think it also illustrates the fact that there there's such a wide range of women and that there's such a wide range of experience and a wide range of comfort or confidence in speaking. That's Jenny Reeder. She's the 19th century women's history specialist at the Church History Department for the LDS Church. We're talking with her and Kate Holbrook about their book, At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. So let's talk a little bit more about selection. Uh, as you were combing through all of these different sources, how long was that process? And, and what sort of criteria did you decide on to either include something or not include something? The process took two or three years of combing through all of these materials. And early on in the process, we were working with Janelle Higby, and she quoted Emily Dickinson that we wanted a talk that would make you feel like the top of your head had blown off. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted, we wanted uh, to put talks in this book that people would read, and they'd immediately want to go share. They'd want to read this quotation or go tell this story to their friends because they were meaningful. One of our major criteria was that each talk have theological analysis in it. These are heavy-hitting analytical talks, and we wanted them to be good from an aesthetic standpoint. I was an English major as an undergraduate, and we wanted them to just be well-written, well-composed talks from that, that standpoint as well. It's interesting to see the, the change over time from the earliest records that you include to some of the later ones and how they become more polished, more formulaic, I think, over time and as... as Patterns of discourse get more established over time. So toward the end of the book, as you mentioned, there are more pieces from uh, devotionals or firesides and um, or general conference address type of thing, and they follow that set 
type of formula, whereas the earlier records don't at all. Um, in, in some cases, some of the really short ones or some of the ones that are taken for minute books, they have their own logic that's different from what we find later on in the book. It's true, and I think for the most part, the early talks were given extemporaneously. And I think there's a huge difference between an extemporaneous talk where a woman gets up and just sort of shares whatever's on her mind or whatever thought comes to her or she sees someone in the audience and that reminds her of something um, versus a well-designed treatise on grace. So that's one of the biggest changes over time. Someone suggested to us we could use the book to convince people that it's really worth taking the time to think through and prepare a careful talk in church because a carefully prepared talk can be so powerful. But when I heard that advice, I remembered some of these extemporaneous talks in the early part of the book that blow the top of my head off. They're so moving and articulate. So there are riches throughout some people can some people do better at extemporaneous i don't when i when i speak in church i write most of it out (laughs) after writing this book i write all of my talks (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i know i know exactly how that is um let's look at lucy mac smith's one of lucy mac smith's contributions the fifth piece in the book is an address that she delivered in general conference in 1845 at nauvoo and this was after her sons had been killed. Uh, Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith had been killed, and the church was looking at, the LDS church was looking at moving uh, west. And Lucy Mac Smith stands up in a general conference meeting to give what she calls her last testimony to a world from whence I must soon take my departure. And in the introductory material, you note that she presented a confused chronology and incomplete information. So, you want readers to be attentive to reading critically in these sources and not take everything that's that's spoken here for granted. And I don't know that we get a lot of exercise doing that uh, in, in in church settings. Um, we tend to read edited sources that have been you know sort of pre-correlated and and everything's in a row before then. But in this. You're including these historical sources that include maybe misremembering, uh, misremembrances, if that's a word. Um, talk a little bit about that and reading these sources critically, Kate. Well, my first thought while you were talking, Blair, is just that, that this is what we do in sacrament meeting. This is what we do in state conference. We sit there and we know this guy and we know, you know who he's related to or we know this tragedy that happened in, in his life. And that helps us to interpret and it helps us to approach him with mercy too and say well he got that wrong but you know this happened and um so i don't think it's something foreign foreign to us for us we wanted to provide as much we we there's a lot of annotation and endnotes in the book and we wanted to provide as much information as we could to really give people that context so just like when uh the your neighbor is out bearing her testimony you have some information that helps you make meaning of what she's saying so that readers of this book could also know uh, the background of the speakers and, and think about where they were coming from and what their priorities were and what their life experiences had, had taught them. I think this talk was the one that required the most heavy annotation and careful research to try to figure out the pieces and, and where they, the accuracy of it all. But I think it also demonstrates what I like to call a usable past where Lucy is using her past and her role as this Mormon mother, as the mother in Israel, to demonstrate who she is, to remind people who her sons were, 
and their role in building up this church. And if you look at the context of when this talk was given in, in 1845, there's been a lot of debate and controversy over the direction, the future direction of the church. Um, this is also a time when she's starting to write her history of her son and of the church and of her family. So these are all things that have been on her mind and things that she feels important. And I think it's important to recognize that. What, Even if it's inac- inaccurate, why is she telling this story and what does it mean for her in 1845? Yeah, I mean, one line example from that is when she, her counsel, don't let your children play out of doors footnote. <laughs> and what, what was going on there? So there was a lot of uh, a lot of problems with kids getting into trouble. There was also, this was a time when there was a lot of persecution against Mormons, and so it really just wasn't a safe place. Um, but there was also, a, because of the persecution, there were a lot of Mormons who were also taking, taking that a step further and, and fighting back. So she wanted to make sure that people were safe and that Mormons were doing the right thing. They were being acting appropriately. And as you know, this was the first account of a woman speaking in a general conference, and then it didn't happen again until 1879. So there's this big window between 1845 and 1879 when all of the discourses and sources aren't coming from a general conference context, uh, but these other contexts, Relief Society meetings and other type of of situations where women are speaking. So we do actually have women speaking in different sessions of conference be- before 1879, but they're not really considered the the general sessions of conference. They spoke in outdoors sessions of general conference and they spoke in welfare sessions of general conference. And the book has an appendix of every instance of women speaking in official general conference throughout the history of the church. How many of those sources are available, like on the Church History Library website? Are a lot of those discourses available there? That's a great idea. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Something to do. Yeah. It was also important to us not to, uh, I think we have maybe two general conference talks in the whole book, because we yeah. were trying to find talks that weren't easily accessible for people. Those two talks we just happened to love so much that we put them in anyway, because right. we wanted to highlight them, but... Yeah, and, and again, they are representative of a place where uh, women spoke more frequently at the, in a particular era of the church, and so, yeah, it's representative, too. Right. Um, let's talk about Alicia Grist. Uh, this is a piece that was published in a periodical, so I think, Jenny, you edited this one. Uh, is that right? Yes, yeah. I did. This was published in the Millennial Star in 1861. Alicia Griss was a British saint. She was actually an actress while in Britain. 1861 is before the Relief Society was reorganized in Utah on a permanent basis, and it was well before any Relief Societies were organized in Great Britain. And she writes this, as I said, it's an address to the sisters, and so this is her mode, her medium, by which she can speak to the women in Great Britain. And it's, it has a few um, moments in here that, that are definitely feel dated. Um, I'm thinking, for example, when she talks about how each of us have a mission to perform. If we were only to consider what responsibility there is devolving upon us in every act we perform, though we are the weaker vessels and cannot be called to bear off the higher responsibilities which rest upon the men. So she's talking about women as weaker vessels and this sort of thing. Um, talk, talk about that a little bit. 
I think it's important that we we cannot separate these women from their historical and cultural time periods. And this is the middle of the Industrial Revolution, and women's rights are really sparking in England, and also this constant Victorian distinction of separate spheres is also happening. And so you see this, I think, all of this tension in this talk, where first of all, she says, we each have a mission to perform. But then she says, we are the weaker vessel. And we have to recognize the historic context that she's speaking from. She goes on, though, to talk about how important it is for sisters to bear off the higher responsibilities, to carry a pure sentiment and create a lively spirit and to share the gospel, which is an early iteration of women getting involved in missionary work. She talks about the responsibility to teach children and bring them to, or immigrate to Utah. And when she comes to Utah, she herself continues as an actress in the Salt Lake Theater. So she was a public figure herself. Um, I assume, in addition, was she a parent as well? Did she? Yes, she had. She they, she before they came to in, or to Utah, they traveled all over. England and Ireland, and she had several children, and a, a few of them passed away, but two of them came with her across the plains. Yeah, so this was a woman who had a profession of sorts, was also a mother, was speaking uh, publicly here to the church, and you, you mentioned in the introduction that uh, there were English, uh, many mid-19th century English women who fought for women's rights and suffrage also simultaneously defended the Victorian concepts of these distinct gendered spheres. The woman's place was in the home and that sort of thing. And, and so I think, I think it can be a valuable exercise for readers today to reckon with that historical context and sort of suss out the roots of, of that sort of strict division. Absolutely. And I think it's also illustrative of the different perspectives that are happening all at the same time. And it's not just a woman's right woman or a feminist, um, but it's someone who's engaged in all of these ideas at once. The next one that I really liked was Maddie Horn Tingey. Um, this is an example of, of someone who few Latter-day Saints have probably heard of today. And this example struck me because this is someone speaking in a non-LDS venue. It's really exciting to see in the history of Mormon women in the late 19th century how they start to become involved and enmeshed in national and international women's organizations, particularly starting with suffrage and with the National Council of Women and the International Council of Women. This talk by Maddie Hornting is given in Chicago during the Chicago World's Fair. It's a part of the World's Congress of Representative Women. And she was invited to speak as a representative of the Young Women's Organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This talk is fascinating because even though she is speaking to uh, a much larger audience than a lot of other talks in this book, she, she continues to celebrate the abilities and the, 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 I don't know, the rights of women she encourages women who have been given the power to, and honor to open the door. Um, she also talks, though, about Mormon theology. She mentions the idea of a heavenly mother and the responsibility of women as mothers. She quotes, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rocks the world. And she encourages women to stand side by side and shoulder to shoulder, not only with their husbands, but with other women in making the world a better place. It's a call to action. Yeah, she's talking about the principles of justice and equal rights. 
Uh, and she's talking about how women, a uh, woman herself is beginning to feel that she's an intelligent, responsible being. So she's part of this sort of wider cultural awakening in this uh, and speaking to that as a Latter-day Saint woman. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because this is at a time when the Latter-day Saints are sort of coming out of their isolation into a much larger national picture. And women really seem to be at the forefront of that. They were really involved, like I said, nationally and internationally, where the men were more involved back in Utah with the priesthood and the settlement issues. Women had the opportunity to be more involved on other organizations. That's Jenny Reeder. She's the 19th century women's history specialist at the church history department for the LDS church. Uh, The next one that stuck out to me was from uh, Lucretia Suarez de Juarez. So Kate, I think you uh, edited this one. And this is interesting because it's a translation. So, and it comes from someone who's not of, uh, you know, some native English speaker. uh, and, And I think it may be the first one in the book that's that was originally in a different language. Is that right? Yes. The only one in the book that was originally in a different language. It was really important to us to represent Latter-day Saint women from around the world. And in the first part of the book, that is a little bit, the speakers do represent the membership of the church, which was primarily from, you know, Scandinavia, the British Isles and, and, and the U.S. And so we do have speakers from England and Scotland and Ireland. Um, later on, because of the records we had available to us, it became more difficult to find those voices. So we were really excited when we came across. This was a period in the church where President Kimball had started having area conferences, and they kept records of those area conferences. And thank heaven they did, because then we have some women's voices in those area conferences. Lucretia Suarez de Juarez was a very, she had a very colorful life story, which I love. She was raised in wealth. And uh, her, her family, however, after the Mexican Revolution in 1910, the Zapatista army kept raiding their holdings, so finally they had to move to Mexico City. She met her husband, who was a musician in Mexico City. He himself had s- escaped Pancho Villa's army to go to Mexico. Uh, and then they were married for about 22 years before he died. And she, be, she was the di- first director of one of the church's schools, there in Mexico, and and then she spoke as the Stake Relief Society president at this area conference. How did you find that record? We we looked through all of the area conference reports to try to find talks uh, by women. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Who did the translating? The, unfortunately, the translator was unnamed. Oh, it so was it was a, already it, even it, translated. It was already wow. translated. It was a church bureaucrat who translated these wow. talks into English for them to become official church. So records. it was ready to go. And yeah. So she comes from a different background than a lot of people, um, a lot of other speakers before her in the book. What what stood out to you as you edited this one and, and added the annotations? I like that it felt like it was coming from a non-American culture. There's there's a dreamlike sequence in the talk in which uh, it reminded me of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and, and his mm. writing, except it wasn't pretend. It was her using this story in order to make a point about parenting and about the divine female uh, that we have the potential to cultivate during this life. There's a quotation that I 
particularly like here where she says, the program in the spirit of Relief Society opens the door to an extensive field in which the most noble attributes of womanhood are cultivated, and these bring us happiness. So that doesn't sound different than what Relief Society women in the United States were saying, and her fo- and neither does her focus on happiness, but I think they're both beautiful. And I think they show, they reinforce this idea that Relief Society really was a place where women could flourish, where they could find their voices. Yeah, I like a little bit later on in the discourse where she says, could one lone woman combat against the negative influences which harm our children? No sisters. We're gathered together as an army of righteousness and determined women who can do something. So she had a very collective uh, view of even ch- child rearing here and, and recognizing the role of Relief Society in assisting uh, particularly women here um, in raising children and sort of keeping them on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Yeah. But I like that collective. Um, yeah, we need each other to get this yeah. done. Yeah. So I thought that was a really good one. Uh, there's there's another one a little bit later on in the book that seems to be a little bit more of a controversial piece because it's it's it was delivered around the time that the Equal Rights Amendment was being discussed in the United States. I'm thinking here about Belle Spafford's address, and I believe she was Relief Society president at the time, and she gave this talk at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that one and, and its inclusion in the book. Yes, this was actually just after she was Relief Society General President. Belle Spafford was really involved in the national conversations that were taking place during the second wave of the feminist movement. And in fact, in 1968, that banner year where we were having a lot go on with civil rights and a lot go on with the women's movement, she was invited to be president of the National Council of of Women. And she was concerned about that. She went to David O. McKay. She said, I'm, I, you know, how can you be general president of the Relief Society and president of the National Council of Women headquartered in New York City at the same time? And he really encouraged her to do it. He said, we will help you. Our doors are open to you. He was the church president. Our doors are open to you whenever you need us. Uh, so she did. She took that on and she was president of the National Council of Women. And then she, cont- she had been heavily involved in those committees beforehand, and even after she was president of the Relief Society, she continued to be heavily involved in the National Council of Women. And what this meant was that she was reading what what everybody, what all the thinking women trying to figure out how to be a woman, how to help women, what they were. She was involved in their conversations. She was reading the material that they were reading, and she was having conversations with the leaders in many of these mo- movements. There's an interesting moment here where the annotation points out a source that she's using that subsequent uh, research here at the Church History Library has shed more light on. So she, she begins to quote from Joseph Smith when he established the Relief Society in Nauvoo, and she's quoting from that. Talk about that moment there and, and the annotation that, that sort of gives clarification where she wouldn't have been aware of that, uh, of that need for clarification. Right. Well, Spafford had written, when she was first on the General Relief Society board, she was tasked to write a centennial history of Relief Society. So in 1942, Relief Society turned 100 years old. And writing that history really influenced the way she approached her work in the Relief Society. And she often quoted from old Relief Society documents. Now, her source for Relief Society history was often the history of the church. And the history of the church had edited the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes in some important ways. One of the more well-known ones that we talk about extensively in the first 50 years of Relief Society uh, is where Joseph Smith said, I now 
he was speaking in Relief Society, and he said, I now turn the key to you. And then he describes all of these blessings that will flow to women uh, from heaven. Well, the history of the church edited that. So instead of saying, I now turn the key to you, it said, I now turn the key on your behalf. So here is another moment where that was edited instead of the original wording, which said, you will receive instruction, which God has established through the medium of those appointed to lead, guide, and direct the affairs of the church. That's how the wording appears in the original Nauvoo Minute book. And the history of the church, which she quoted as authoritative, uh, you will receive instruction through the order of the priesthood, which God has established. Now, we don't vilify the people who were editing the history of the church, because this was a very common practice then. You you tried to edit documents, like if you were editing Thomas Jefferson's documents, you did it to try to make him look smarter and better. If you were editing other documents, you tried to make them look like you thought they should look. And that was what was going on here. They thought they were adding clarity. Right, it's this idea, and I've seen this um, as well in other types of documents where they're trying to present it as is true to the original, and they believe that wording changes like this will make it more true to the well, original. Yes. But now, you know, we look back and see sort of differences, and so providing that annotation so that people can see the differences and 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 bring their perspective, today's perspective, to bear on it, is a really useful thing about this book. Yeah. I think that because um, it seems to be a book that was that's directed to general readership, um, and so general readers. To get to get this kind of nuance, I, I think is really important, especially especially today. To 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 get the kind of nuance that you provide through the annotation, and and to be more critical about the sources that that we read from. Yes, I I want to make clear that I I didn't approve of the edits of the yeah. history of the church because they did have fairly devastating con- consequences. Yeah. Right. Turning the turning the key to you is different than turning the key. On, on your behalf. Right. So that is why we so carefully right. annotated. And we, when we found mistakes in any of these talks, the sources we have access to now are much richer and, and more accurate than the sources that people in the past had, had access to. Did you guys discuss this one at all? Because um, I know she did this part of the book, but I'm just... We, so our process was we would choose a couple of talks that we thought might be good for each decade, and then we would read them together and give feedback, and then we would make final decisions together on which talks would be included for each decade. Um, and then we would read each other's introductions and annotations and give feedback on those as well. What would you say to women in the church today who might read Bell Spafford's piece about the ERA and feel uncomfortable about it because of its, I mean, it's openly um, in opposition to the ERA, and people that in, in the church that have a different view on that um, what what do you think this book can do for for the, that type of a reader? I think one of the things that I've loved about reading this book is it forces you out of camps. It forces you out of saying, I am with her or I am against her. Because if you read her talk carefully, so she was, she did eventually decide that she would be against the ERA. She wasn't against it because she didn't want women to be treated equally with men. But she thought that there were other legal approaches that might be more effective, and she was worried about women losing legal protections. She was worried about what might happen uh, in with alimony and with custody battles and, and she, women being drafted into the army. So those were the 
arguments she made uh, for why she was against the ERA. But she also says in this talk, she says the time for, there, this is not a time for women to stay home and only speak to their families and only think about their families. This is a time where we need women to develop their full potential and be actively involved in civic life. So you can't put her in a, in a, in a box. You have to really look at, at all that she said and why she was saying it. Yeah, and of course, it's also important to include because it is, I mean, it was a fundamental topic at that time. And so it's really representative of, of the era. It, yes. and, and it is was it, on everybody's mind. So as a book of historical sources, it's got to be in there. That also raises the question of the absence of discussion of polygamy earlier on in the book. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. There aren't any uh, discourses here that, that directly address polygamy. So some people might see this as a collection, as a historical collection that is shading that part out or ignoring that part. So how would you respond to that type of a criticism, Jenny? I think polygamy really involves all of these early talks and these early women. In fact, we know that polygamy and the defense of, of religious freedom and the defense of religious practice is one platform or one media in which women gained confidence and felt like they, they needed to talk about. Because we wanted to focus more on the timeless gospel, gospel topics and because we don't practice polygamy today, we decided not to choose any talks that directly spoke of polygamy. And yet, I really think you can find the, the underpinnings or the ideas of polygamy throughout the book. For example, Eliza R. Snow talks in um, 1869 to the 17th Ward Relief Society, and she's, she talks about, we are brought into circumstances which are calculated to bring into exercise every po power and faculty which we possess. And we can, we can think about what those specific circumstances were, and I'm sure in 1869 part of that had to do with polygamy. Um, but she says, let us cultivate ourselves that we may be capable of doing m much good. So polygamy really could be underlying a lot of these talks. Um, she talks also about how every member should study to know her place and honor herself by filling it honorably and all move forward like machinery that is perfect in all its parts. Um, there, another thing that she says in 1880 when she's in Kanab, Utah, in southern Utah, she talks about how women are responsible for their own salvation and their husbands are not responsible to provide salvation for the women. And so you can see how polygamy underlies a lot of this mm -hmm. without being specifically stated. We also have so many uh, speeches given by women about polygamy in the first 50 years of Relief Society. We didn't want to reprint those. And also, those speeches were given from a defensive position in which women were really insisting, trying to convince the world that that this was, that they were happy and this was what God wanted, which maybe isn't the most historically accurate portrait of plural marriage. Yeah, and you see that a little bit in the first 50 years of Relief Society, where they're definitely putting a public face on the practice of polygamy in a defense of it, and so it's not going to be an in-depth examination of what it was like to live in polygamy. It's representative of what they publicly felt they needed to do to protect their religious beliefs and practice, but in terms of unpacking uh, unpacking what polygamy was like and, and, and their heart of hearts, what they thought of it. Yeah, you don't really That's see that in the public source. record. Yeah. yeah. It, we, we do sh talk about in the biographical introductions how many of these women in the first half of the book are plural wives. Okay, good. The next 
The next piece that I wanted to talk about was Francine Arbenians. And to me, this was the most interesting piece in the whole book. I had never encountered this piece before. It's fascinating. It's very sophisticated. It's exploring difficult questions. It's it's talking about uncertainty in ways that were quite surprising to me. Um, so let's talk about that piece for a minute, Francine Benyon. You know, one of the joys of this book is people both dead and alive have become friends to me and Jenny. Francine is still alive, and I didn't know her before going to do an oral history interview with her so I could write the introduction to her talk. And she's now a good friend, and she's such a careful thinker. Uh, she even wrote ensign articles for children that are really sophisticated and worth exploring, that, that take a real look. She doesn't take an easy answer for anything. She takes a real look at things, and she tries to figure out what our underlying assumptions are behind that and why we have those assumptions and what needs we're trying to fulfill. And at the same time, she's a deeply spiritual woman, so she tries to get at the truth of the principle, whether it's faith or not. Theodicy is always a complicated topic. That's the, that's the topic of her article here. And this is one of my favorite treatments of theodicy that I've read. Uh, in my life. It's also hands down my favorite treatment of the story of Jephthah, the troubling story in the Hebrew Bible. And if you remember, Jephthah uh, was so happy with his military victory that he made some sort of deal with the Lord that whoever came out to greet him first would be sacrificed in gratitude. And it was his daughter who came out dancing in celebration to meet him. And so According to this vow he'd made to the Lord, he had to sacrifice her, and he did. Now, it's easy to read this in a shallow way where you say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is such a cruel being that he would allow this sort of situation to go on or that he would encourage this sort of situation. Well, Francine Benyon really complicates it, and she says, is this God's doing or is this human's doing? Who was responsible for the suffering in this story? Is it Jephthah? Is it the religious leaders who taught Jephthah that that, was a, that, that made sense is, something, is a way to celebrate your victory? And, and so she really unpacks this story in, in new ways and made it more meaningful and useful to me than any I had come across. She's really blunt about particular things such as how she says Latter-day Saints are accustomed to talking of fragments of theology. They're also accustomed to fragments of scripture out of context. And then she gives a list of scriptures that she says, let's let's puzzle through this. Uh, Second Nephi says, men are that they might have joy. And Job 5 says, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And she has a whole list of these scriptures that she juxtaposes in order to, to draw out some of the apparently contradictory things in scriptures to talk about how sometimes we miss these contradictions. We don't wrestle with them. And as a result, our scripture reading and our theology risks being somewhat shallow. And this was one of the most straightforward descriptions of that phenomena that I've ever seen in an official church publication. I agree with you. And this was a, a talk that she gave at BYU Women's Conference originally. But she explains it so very clearly. Uh, and this is not the only talk in the book that calls us to think more to examine more carefully what we're looking at and to really pull it apart and with prayer and with other intellectual resources to get to the bottom of things. There's a 1930s talk by Elsie Brandley that's one of my favorite about questions and about helping youth with questions and not 
leaving them alone to go explore and then come back, but taking that journey with them, find out what they're reading, find out what's meaningful to them, and then teach them to take questions to God and find answers to them. Julie Willis in our ebook also has a fantastic talk on this topic. And I actually think this is a theme that we see throughout the whole book. In 1852, when Phoebe Angel is talking to the Female Institute of Health, she tells them you can't rely just on book learning, um, but you also have to rely on God. And she's talking about that mix of those two things. And so this is something that we see, perhaps it's, sim- it's more simply said in, in 1852, but it is a, an important thing for these women all throughout the, the history of the church. Yeah. This is appropriate for a Maxwell Institute podcast in which we honor Neil Maxwell, who, who asked us, what does it mean to honor God with all of your might, mind and strength? Yeah. Right. And, and I love that, um, for example, in the Francine Bennion piece, she's talking about thinking through things. She's talking about wrestling with things and not taking everything for granted. I, I think it's striking that she says there's no single theology of suffering in our church. So the whole piece is about theodicy, uh, sort of puzzling through the problem of, of suffering in the world. She says there's no single theology of suffering in our church. There's no one framework uniform in all respects. We have various frameworks. And she puzzles through some of them and talks about some of the strengths and weaknesses of them. And I think that is really important to think about in the context of this entire collection and in any sort of collection of, of discourses or, or you know, conference proceedings or whatever, is that there really are different perspectives that we can wrestle with, that we can learn from, that we can engage with, that we can change our minds about, that we can help other people change their minds about. And to me, Benyon's piece is really openly encouraging that type of, of exchange between Latter-day Saints. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. And and that's one of the reasons we love that there are so many voices in this book because we all have we all have church leaders who speak to us and strike us in different ways and then there are some who might challenge us and and so you need a smorgasbord because you need to be challenged. As, right. As and, well as made comfortable. And the last uh the last discourse in the collection is from Gladys N. Satati and I believe she is married to uh, Elder Satati of the Quorum of the 70, is that right? That's right. And she uh is uh, she's a powerful speaker. This is a powerful piece. Um, her background was in medicine or law. I don't, um, do you remember? Ed- education, actually. She was a teacher, and then she also worked in Kenya for the Board of Education. That's what it was. There, at, at the time she was doing this work, they didn't have uh, many higher-level institutions of higher learning. And so she would help students find placements out, outside of the country. Many of them went to India, but also the United States and Great Britain, so that they could go to college and then come back. So that was her job. And she, her discourse was, this is from 2016, so just last year, it's year 2016. And how did you decide on this piece to round out the collection? We, well, it was just a, an exciting talk, and she was an exciting person uh, to think about including. She she represented as a speaker from a part of the world that we hadn't yet represented. She's smart, and she spoke from life experience. W- one of the things we've thought a lot about 
while putting this book together is women's authority to speak. And we see that sometimes women are speaking with the authority of their official callings, you know, General Relief Society president. Sometimes they're speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. Well, in most, in all of these, actually, we have felt that. Sometimes they are speaking from the authority of their professional expertise as a midwife, as a college professor, uh, and sometimes they're speaking from the authority of life experience. And Sister Satati here is looking, she's analyzing the scriptures carefully and talking about conflict and uh, avoiding conflict and um, navigating interpersonal relationships. And she's also speaking from the authority of her own life experiences a member of a big family herself, and then she had a number of children. When, when and she, then she was also, her elder Satati was mission president, and she was um, sort of counseling missionaries and overseeing, talking to missionaries about these issues as well. So there's family stuff, there's, there's a church calling related uh, thing that, that all informs this right. discourse. All, all informs where she's, the experience she's had that, that has granted her this wisdom. And she does it in such a way that she, like Kate said, she draws on scripture and she draws on gospel principle. One quotation from it, she says, In the course of our labors, as we exercise patience, meekness, and humility with purity of heart, our spirituality will grow and flourish. Our actions can then transcend all human barriers, including cultural, economic, and political associations. Like, we need this right now all over the world and also in the United States. We need our actions and our feelings to be able to transcend all human barriers. And that's Gladys Satati's discourse that's included in the book At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. Uh, It spans 1831 to 2016. There are 54 speeches or discourses given in all. Uh, It's a powerful collection and I want to congratulate you both on publishing it. Before we go, I just wanted to hear from both of you about what you hope this collection accomplishes. I love that At the Pulpit shows such a variety of women coming from different, different experiences, different levels of education, different occupations, different um, family makeup. And it shows that each of these women had something significant to say. It is my hope that readers will see like I have that I too have something to say that they have something important to say and that we all have been given this charge from Joseph Smith to expound the church and exhort scripture and to speak up and speak out as um, Russell M. Nelson stated in general conference we all have that responsibility we wrote the book for two audiences a scholarly audience and a church member audience for the scholarly audience Mormon women get short shrift in American religious studies. And often, even when they're approached, they have women speaking for them or about them. This is a collection of women speaking about themselves, their own religious thinking in their own voices. So we, there's no excuse now. We have this in the first 50 years of Relief Society. There's no excuse to not uh, to do a more careful, thorough, accurate treatment of Mormon women and their role in the trajectory of American religious history. And you feel like this sort of primary source access is key to getting more focus on women more generally in these type of academic explorations. Yes, and then you look, you see what they said. 
you see what they thought, what was important to them, not what was important to the people who were trying to spin their words in a particular way. Yeah, so you have to take that, take their voices and their, and you have to take them into account. Yes. Mm. I think that for church members, men and women, uh, reading this book will help you become, it will help you see how to become a more effective disciple of Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we go, what, what are you both working on now that this book is complete? I'm actually beginning a really exciting project. I think it follows off of first 50 years of Relief Society, these Relief Society documents, and at the pulpit, this collection of women's discourses. We are working to digitize, transcribe, and index uh, over 900 19th century Relief Society minute books. Mm. It's really exciting to be able to take this to an even deeper local level where we'll be able to partner with Family Search. So you'll be able to look up your great-great-grandmother and see how she participated in Relief Society, what she said, what she donated. Um, look at local Relief Societies and also give scholars access to those records and those words. Yeah, so some of the stuff that's in first 50 years of Relief Society can, you, can be placed in, a, in its wider direct context as well. Absolutely. Huh. How about you, Kate? I'm working on a history of the young women organization in the church, and that will be a thematic history, not an encyclopedic history. So we're when looking can, for When them. can we expect these? Are, these? are we a little ways out on both these projects? A little ways out on, on the young women history. The, the organization turns 150 years old in 2020. Okay. So we're hoping so to wrap it up by then. Yeah. Okay. And with the Release Society Minute book database, we're going, we hope to be putting out our first batch in the summer of 2017. We're also, because it's such a huge project, we're, we're going to be doing what we like to call community sourcing or crowdsourcing and asking people to get involved much in the same way that they do with indexing. Cool. So they can find their grandmother's minute books or their town's minute books or where they serve their mission's minute books. And that's not just uh, Utah stuff? There, are no. there minute books from... As, uh, the later that we get in the 19th century, we have minute books from Scandinavia, mm. from the Pacific Islands, from Mexico and Western Europe. It's really exciting. Great. Uh, that's Jenny Reeder. She joined me today with Kate Holbrook to talk about their book, At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. Thank you both for coming on the Maxwell Institute podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Blair.